I was saying good morning to everyone and a warm welcome to those who are visiting with us as I try to reattach this to my belt. There it is. We are studying the book of uh, Romans and in particular we are studying the first section. It begins in chapter 1, verse 18, and it ends in chapter 3, verse 20. Last Sunday, I gave you an overview, and I want to repeat it. And to that end, Arthur is going to bring up uh, those slides we walked through last Sunday. And uh, you'll remember, if you were here, we're approaching this section as if we were in a courtroom. You remember, right? You've got it memorized. Let me get out of the way. A courtroom. This is just review, and this is just to help us so that we have a bird's eye view of this first section in this epistle, again, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, concluding in chapter 3, verse 20. And so in this courtroom, as with any courtroom, there is a judge, God Almighty. Uh, There is the accused, humanity. Humanity, and this might be a little tricky, humanity as divided into two groups, Gentiles and Jews. Why? It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. goes all the way back to Genesis chapters 11 and 12. In chapter 11, we have the nations at the Tower of Babel. And God spreading the nations over the face of the earth. His plan is to bless the nations. His plan is to save His people from among the nations. But He's going to prepare for the advent, the coming of that individual through whom He will save His people. And so in chapter 12, he chooses someone. He elects a man, Abram. Changes his name to Abraham. Then he elects one of Abraham's sons, not Ishmael, but Isaac. Then he elects one of Isaac's sons, not Esau, but Jacob. Jacob, he changes his name into Israel. And he becomes the father of the Israelites, or as we commonly know them, the Jews. And so to understand biblical history, we need to understand that distinction between the Jews, that nation, and everybody else. They are the nations, the Gentiles. And God reveals himself through the Jews in the Old Testament, preparing for the coming of that individual, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the promised seed, through whom, by whom, God will bless all of the nations. And so Paul is bringing all humanity, Gentiles, Jews, it doesn't matter who you are, He's saying you all are on trial. In modern day thinking, perhaps this will be helpful, we can think of the Gentiles today in terms of those who don't have the Bible. And think of the Jews in terms of those who do have the Bible. They constitute humanity. So there are some people today who don't have the Bible. There are some people today who do have the Bible. And Paul's point is it makes no difference. They all stand condemned in God's sight. And so Paul acts as the prosecuting attorney. And he calls two witnesses in this section, in this uh, trial. The first witness, general revelation, fancy expression, simply for creation. And creation is going to bear witness against the Gentiles, those who don't have the Bible. And then he's going to call a second witness, special revelation, those who do have the Bible. And special revelation, Scripture, is going to testify against the Jews. And in the midst of this court trial, as it unfolds, the defense attorney is going to stand up at a couple points. And Mr. Nice, 
defense attorney is going to stand up with an objection when it comes to the Gentiles, and Mr. Religious is going to stand up with an objection when it comes to the Jews. So there is our bird's eye view of this first section in Paul's epistle to the Romans. Next slide, Arthur. And there is how it all unfolds. Coming back to you now. Fresh in your minds and your memories. It begins with the accusation. We looked at it last Sunday. The wrath of God. Here's the problem. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. An apocalypse. It is revealed right now. Against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness. This is the problem. Men do not love God. Unrighteousness. Men do not love their fellow man. And so the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Who suppress the truth by or in their unrighteousness. That's a pretty weighty accusation. Can you defend it? And that's what Paul does. And he calls two witnesses. And he calls the first witness creation. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 32. And creation demonstrates that the Gentiles, even those, even those who do not have the Bible, are guilty of suppressing the truth by their unrighteousness. How? Because they have suppressed the truth that God has made clear in creation. But there's an objection. Hang on a second. I'm good. I'm a nice guy. To which Paul responds in the first 16 verses of chapter 2. And basically what he says is, no, you're not. He says a lot more than that, but that's the crux of his argument in those verses. No, no, you're not. Then he calls his second witness, Scripture, the oracles of God, the Bible. And the Bible gives its testimony in chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. And here its testimony is directed primarily at the Jews, or we can think today of people who have the Bible. And the Bible itself testifies that, yes, God reveals His truth through me, that is, through the Scriptures. And yet people, even those who have those Scriptures, they suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. The lawyer makes an objection. Hang on a second. I'm religious. And Paul's basic response in the first eight verses of chapter 3 is this, big deal. So rather than being a sinner, you are now a religious sinner. That's his point in the first eight verses. And so there is the testimony as it unfolds. Finally, we have the verdict from the judge himself, verses 9 through 18, summed up in this one expression, all Jews, Gentiles, does not matter. All humanity, all people, all places, all times, makes no difference. All are under sin. And then the sentence, verses 19 through 20, all are accountable to God, which brings us full circle all the way back to the accusation in verse 18 and those dreadful words, therefore the wrath of God is revealed against the ungodliness, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So there you have it, the trial, this courtroom drama as it unfolds beginning in chapter 1, verse 18 and ends in chapter 3, verse 20, all setting the context, this bad news, for what? The good news. He's already declared the good news. Remember his thesis statement in verse 17, where he quotes, quotes from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 14. The just shall live by faith. Why? Why does it have to be by faith? Why do we have to be saved by grace? This is why, because we've got a big problem. We are all under God's wrath. He proves it. And then we have a glorious word. 
precious word, verse 21, the very first word. Do you know what it is? But. But. However. However. The righteousness of God is now revealed apart from the law. There is hope. Yes, all have sinned. That famous verse, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Paul there waxes eloquent on the doctrine of justification. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Good news is coming. I can't promise when. Maybe December. We'll see. But there's the trial, and there's where we are, stuck in these three chapters Again, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, and summing up in chapter 3, verse 20. So our concern today is the testimony of that first witness, creation, general revelation. And so follow along as I read it for us, beginning in verse 19. Again, that's Romans chapter 1, verse 19. For what can be known about God? is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. It is actually a judicial term in the Greek. Verse 21 For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, beginning in verse 22, pay attention to two different phrases. The first phrase is simply the word exchanged. You're going to hear it three times. The second phrase is handed them over or gave them up in the English Standard Version, gave them up. You're going to hear it three times. And Paul is going to bounce back and forth between these two phrases. Verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. 
they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And there is the testimony of general revelation, creation. It consists of three key pieces of evidence. And so stay with your sanctified imagination and imagine Paul standing in a courtroom and there is general revelation on the witness stand. And there's this exchange, there's this interaction between the two of them. And so Paul begins and he asks creation, is it true? Mr. Creation, is it true that um, man possesses the knowledge of God? And creation says, yes, it is true. Man possesses the knowledge of God, but he suppresses that knowledge. That is, piece of article of evidence number one, and we find it in verses 19 through 21. Look in particular what Paul says in the 21st verse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So there is the first piece of evidence. Man suppresses the knowledge of God. The second piece of evidence is this. Mr. Creation, is it true that man possesses the truth of God, but rejects that truth? And creation confirms it. Yes, indeed it is. And we find that beginning in verse 22, all the way through to verse 28. Just look for a moment at what Paul says in the 25th verse. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And then he brings a third piece of evidence. Mr. Creation, is it true that man possesses the decree of God? And creation confirms it. Yes, it is. But man ignores it. And that third piece of evidence is found beginning in verse 29 all the way through to verse 32. Look specifically at what Paul says in that last verse. Verse 32, though they know God's decree, though they know God's decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so three things which man knows by virtue of creation. Number one, man knows God. Man possesses the knowledge of God. The problem is this, he suppresses that knowledge. The second thing man knows is the truth of God. He knows it by virtue of creation. But the problem is this, he rejects that truth. And thirdly, man knows the decree of God. By virtue of creation, the decree concerning God's coming judgment, and yet he ignores that decree. So there you have it. Pretty simple overview of creation's testimony as it consists of these three pieces of evidence. All we're concerned with today is number one. The first piece of evidence, let me read it again for you, beginning in verse 19. For what can be known about God? is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So there you have the first piece of evidence. Man, creation testifies to it. Man suppresses, squashes, stamps out the knowledge of God. Now notice three details, very important in these verses. Here is detail number one. Paul makes it in verse 19. The knowledge of God is, and please notice this word, plain to man. The knowledge of God is plain to man. Not my word. Look at what Paul says in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. What does he mean? Simply this. What can be known concerning God, that is God's revelation of himself, God's showing forth of himself is blatantly obvious to everyone. You do not need to be a rocket scientist. You do not need to have unbelievable intellectual capacity or inferential capacity to figure this out. This is a truth that is plain to all people in all places at all times. Why? Why is this knowledge of God plain? Paul answers that question right at the end of verse 19. Because, this is marvelous, God has shown it to them. Do you realize God has spoken to every individual who has ever lived? God has shown himself to every single individual who has ever lived. This is an immediate knowledge. This isn't something you learn. This isn't something we rationalize. This isn't something we deduce. This is not the argument for intelligent design. Well, take a look around at the complexity of the world. And so the design demands what? A designer. That's not Paul's starting point. As a matter of fact, the argument for intelligent design, if not defined properly, can actually be somewhat deceptive. Why? Because it places the onus where? On man's ability to reason. That's not Paul's starting point. Paul is not saying, look, we can figure it out if we look around at the evidence. That's not what he is saying. He is saying what? God has shown it. God has revealed it. God has manifested it to all people, all places, all times. It is plain. It begs the second question, how? How has God done that? Paul answers the question in verse 20. Four. Here's how. His invisible attributes. That's God's invisible attributes. Namely, he has something very specific in mind. And this is interesting what he does here. He mentions one invisible attribute, his eternal power, and then couples it with what? His divine nature. Why? Because in the final analysis, God's attributes and nature are inseparable. God's essence and attributes are inseparable. And so I declared it last week. Let me declare it again. God is what he is in his eternal self. God is not merely wise. He is wisdom. He is not merely powerful. He is power. He is not merely loving. He is love. He is not merely angry. He is anger. He is wrath. 
These are not something we attribute to God as if they were qualities. Like we, we, we describe one another. Oh, there's a nice person. There's an angry person. There's a loving person. And these things come and go and they change. And these are qualities that do not define the individual. No, when we speak of God's attributes, His eternal attributes, we are speaking of the divine essence. We are speaking of God Himself. And so that's Paul's point here. His invisible attributes, let me give you an example. His eternal power. But please understand, the revelation of His eternal power is the revelation of His divine nature. You're not merely speaking of a quality concerning God. You are seeing something of who God is in His essential self. And this has been clearly perceived. It's plain. It's blatantly obvious, strikingly obvious, ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So not merely at creation. Not simply millennia ago, not simply a century ago, but today and tomorrow and into the future, God continues to reveal himself. Do you understand that? Each and every day, each and every moment of each and every day, to each and every individual who has ever walked the face of this earth and will ever walk the face of this earth, God himself makes himself known to that individual, plainly obviously, clearly, and he does so through the created order. Well, what is the implications of this? Look at the very last phrase, verse 20. So they are, it is a judicial expression, they are as they stand in the, this, this courtroom, as they stand before the judge, they are without excuse. Guess what? On the judgment day, no one's going to say, but... There will be no ifs, ands, or buts on the judgment day. Let's imagine you're, you're, you're driving, I don't know, here to Cleburne. And you're doing 90. Breeze blowing in your hair or whatever's going on. The tune's cranked. You're going 90 miles an hour on 67 from Glenrose to Cleburne. And you round the bend, and there is your friendly state trooper. And he has your, his radar honed in on you. And he pulls you over, and it's not to chit-chat. And he approaches the car, show me your hands. That's what I'd say if I pulled over some of you. Put your hands where I can see them. And then he approaches you, 90 miles an hour. I'm going to write you a ticket for, uh, for speeding. And uh, you look him straight in the face and you say, but, but I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't realize. And he pulls down his shades and without blinking stares you straight in the eye. Look, it is posted, 65 all the way from Glenrose to Cleburne. You, my friend, are without excuse. That is the judgment day. Whether people have the Bible or not, whether an individual has ever heard the name Jesus or not, it's irrelevant. You ever been asked that question? I, I've asked that question. I asked it. I, I wrestled with it when, in my younger days, and I've heard it, certainly heard it, on innumerable occasions, what, what about that person? What about that poor soul living who knows where who has never heard the truth? Right? You heard that one? Who's never heard the gospel? I had a couple of teachers back in grade school who um, used to say quite regularly, look, there are no silly questions except the question that has been asked before. They were wrong, weren't there? Weren't they? There are plenty of silly questions. And in actual fact, in light of what Paul says right here in these verses... That is a silly question because the question does not exist. 
Because the person does not exist. What about the person who has never heard the truth? There is no such person. Therefore, there is no such question. That is Paul's point. What can be known of God is plain to them. Why? Not because you and I went out as a missionary and told them, but because God himself has shown it. God himself. God is his own witness. God himself has made it clear. God himself has made it abundantly obvious. Ever since creation, he has been declaring himself. Ever since creation, he has been revealing himself. All people, all places, all times. They know he exists. Please understand this. All people, all places, all times know two truths. The first is this. They know God exists. And the second is this. They actually know something of what he is like. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. Now let me ramble on here a little bit. That is transformative when it comes to evangelism. It's transformative when it comes to apologetics. It's transformative when it comes to missions. We do not declare the gospel to people who have never heard the truth. There is no such person. We declare the gospel. We declare the truth. Why? Because it is God's appointed means by which, by his sovereign grace and by his immeasurable power, he sees fit to release people from their self-imposed bondage to ignorance. That's why we proclaim the gospel. That's why we engage in apologetics. That's why we engage in missions. There is no poor soul out there who has never heard. There's no poor soul out there. I remember being guilted. 15-year-old, 16-year-old, I remember sitting in meetings just overwhelmed with guilt as this preacher or somebody stood up there and said, look, on the judgment day, there are going to be people standing there who have never heard and they're going to point at you and say, well, if only you had told me, I wouldn't be in this state, I wouldn't be in this condition. It's nonsense. No one's going to stand up on the judgment day and say, I never knew. No one is going to stand up on the judgment day and say, well, truth, it was never accessible to me. No one is going to stand up in the judgment day and say, I've never heard. If they dare, what's God's response going to be? Silence. Because I have declared myself. I have made myself plain to you. Ever since the creation of the world, in its beauty, in its complexity, in its symmetry, in its diversity, God reveals His eternal power in unmistakable fashion. But what's the second detail in this text? It brings us to the crux of the problem. The second detail is this. Man suppresses the knowledge of God. Verse 21, for although... It's not that they didn't know him. What does Paul say? Although they knew God. Here's the problem. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And so they made a decision. Yes, God has revealed himself. God makes and does reveal himself. It is an ongoing revelation. It, every moment, every day, it's happening right now. God is declaring himself. But what do men and women willfully do? They reject that revelation. Please understand this. I, I've stated it probably so many times from the pulpit. I'm going to state it again. The reason they reject God and suppress this truth and suppress the knowledge of God, it's not for intellectual reasons. It is for moral reasons. 
I'm not making that up. Look what Paul says. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to God. So it's not as though these people were sitting around and thinking to themselves, look, there's no intellectual reason for me to believe in God, therefore I'm going to reject God. No, these people, they know. In their heart of hearts, they know two truths. They know God exists, and they know something of what God is like. But for moral reasons, we'll get to those reasons in just a moment, they refuse to do two things. Number one, they refuse to honor Him as God. They refuse to acknowledge His greatness. They refuse to acknowledge His kingship. And they refuse to submit themselves to Him. Secondly, they refuse to give thanks. They refuse to acknowledge their indebtedness to their Creator. Think this through. Go all the way back with me. All the way back. Adam and Eve. What's going on in the garden? Adam and Eve. It's not, I I, I hope I'm not crossing a line here, but it's not as though Adam and Eve were sitting around in the garden and Adam said to Eve, look, I've been thinking about it. And uh, I've been reasoning to myself. There is uh, no adequate evidence whereby for any acceptable intellectual reason, I should actually believe in God. And Eve looked him straight in the eyes and said, I was thinking the same thing. And therefore, for intellectual reasons, because it it challenged their autonomous thinking, it, it, it defied all reason as far as they were concerned, for intellectual reasons, they decided to defy God. No. Adam and Eve rejected God. Why? Adam and Eve suppressed the knowledge of God. Why? It's entailed, it's encapsulated in the serpent's words to them because in the day you eat thereof, you will be like God. They did not reject God for intellectual reasons. They rejected God for moral reasons. They refused to honor Him as God. They refused to give thanks to Him as God. And then what did they do? God came looking for them. God did not hide Himself. He continued to reveal himself. What did Adam and Eve do? They went and they hid themselves from God. Please understand, their descendants have been doing the same thing ever since. We have been doing exactly the same thing ever since. The knowledge of God is plain to man. But for moral, it is not for intellectual reasons. Although that is often how the argument is phrased, isn't it, today? The issue is not intellectual. The issue is moral. They do not want to honor Him as God. They do not want to give thanks to Him as God. Therefore, they suppress what they know to be true. And what's the third detail in these verses? They, they, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. The third is this. Man corrupts. His knowledge of God. Right at the end of verse 21. But they became futile in their thinking. So futility, vanity, uh, empty. They became empty in their thinking, their reasoning. And Paul adds to it another statement right at the end of verse 21. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Their hearts became impervious to the truth. And so think through Paul's thinking here and these three points, these three major points he is making. The testimony of creation. God, through creation, reveals himself. Past, present, future. And he makes himself plain to everyone. 
The second detail is this. Man willfully suppresses, rejects that revelation. Why? Because he does not want to honor God, nor does he want to thank God. The third detail is what? It spirals downward. That as a result of their suppression of the knowledge of God, their knowledge becomes corrupt. They become futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts, they become impervious to the truth. They become hardened, or rather, they become darkened. I could give, I could give, I don't know how many examples of that last statement in verse 21. Futile thinking, foolish hearts. How many examples of that? And I was thinking through numerous examples this past week. Let me give three. Three examples of man's futile thinking and how this, this, this downward spiral begins to manifest itself. The first is this. We see the futility of man's thinking in his attempt to account for the universe apart from God. So we see the futility of his thinking in his attempt to account for the universe apart from God. And so he suppressed what he knows to be true, that the universe itself testifies and reveals that God is. Not only that God is, but what God is like, his eternal power. He has suppressed that, fallen into absolute futile, empty thinking, manifesting itself in this attempt, vain attempt, to account for the universe apart from God. And so we're left with three choices today. I'll try to move through this quickly. We're left with three choices today. The first choice out there is this. Reality is an illusion. This, whole, this is an illusion. You know, you had a dream last night. And while you were dreaming, it seemed pretty real, didn't it? You thought it was real. And then you woke up and realized it wasn't real. Well, according to some people, that's what this life is. This life is only a dream. And we can't trust our senses. You ever been canoeing? You take that paddle, you dip it into the water, and the paddle... The paddle what happens? That all of a sudden it, it moves out at a strange angle. And, and so your perception, what you're seeing isn't, isn't real. Or, or you're driving in West Texas, never done this, but from what I've heard, this is the way it must be. 110 degrees with the air conditioning on in the car. Sun overhead, not a stitch of shade. Straight highway and you're staring, just gazing straight out of you. What does the road all of a sudden turn into? Water. It looks like water off in the distance. So you can't trust your senses. You cannot trust your physical senses. This, this life is simply an illusion. Uh, reality is an illusion. And death will simply be a gateway to reality. So that's option number one. Option number two is this. Well, no, reality is an illusion, but reality is self-existent. And so that scholar of scholars, Elton John, the circle of life, right? The circle of life. So the material world is eternal. What is physical, what is material, has no beginning, it has no ending. In it, it, the material world in and of itself is self-existent. And we're part of this circle of life. And I suppose that leads to reincarnation and all sorts of ideas. But that, that's, that's option number two out there. Option number three is this, that reality is self-created. And so the material world is all there is, but it did indeed have a beginning. In other words, there was a time when what is was not. But how can something exist before it was? How can something exist before it was if the material world is self-created? It defies all reason. And yet we see the futility of man's thinking once he has separated himself from God. You see, when it comes to knowledge, 
When it comes to knowledge, there are two pillars upon which we build knowledge. We construct all knowledge. You get these pillars wrong, you're, not, you're futile thinking and hearts impervious to the truth. Knowledge number one, truth number one, fact number one is this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. We believe that God is. Truth number two, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. We believe what? That God created everything out of nothing by things which are invisible. There are the two pillars upon which all knowledge is erected. You don't have those pillars. And what happens to knowledge? The result is futility. And we see this futility in man's attempt to account for the universe apart from God. Let me give you a second example. We see man's futility, his futile thinking, in his attempt to reject God on the basis of morality. What does that mean? We see the futility of his thinking in his attempt to reject, dismiss God on the basis of morality. Here's what I mean, simply this. And I'm sure you have heard it before. I have heard it hundreds of times. God, you say, is all-powerful? Okay. God, you say, is loving? Okay. But I look around at this world, and I see suffering. I look around at this world, and I see pain. And I take a quick survey of this world, and I see evil. On that basis, my great moral superiority whereby I stand in judgment over God. Uh, my perception of evil, my perception of pain, my perception of suffering, if God existed, he would eradicate all those things because those things are antithetical to him. Therefore, these things do exist. Therefore, God cannot exist. If he were powerful and he would, were good, there would be no pain, evil, suffering. He would do something about it. Ergo, there is pain, evil, suffering, there cannot be a God. You ever heard that one? It is an example of man's futile thinking. Why do I say that? Why do I argue that? Simply as follows. The moment, the moment I use categories such as good and evil, truth and error, justice and injustice, I am proclaiming the existence of God. Why? Because if there is no God, these categories do not exist. We are simply grown-up germs, and there is no reason why we should not act like animals. Where, where, where does this notion of truth and error, good and evil, bad, beautiful, where do all of these categories come from if there is no God? Uh, you, you remember this, friend. You remember this when the son-in-law, or I don't know, whoever comes over for dinner, and he's got the initials after his name and the degree in biology and all these words you do not understand, and he makes your head spin with his argumentation. The very fact that he is arguing with you, the very fact that he's affirming truth from error, he is testifying, you've, you've already won the argument, you don't need to say anything. He is testifying to what he knows to be true but has suppressed. God has made himself plain. He knows God exists, and he knows something of what God is like, and his very use of those categories testifies to that reality. C.S. Lewis is a stirring example of this. C.S. Lewis, I think he had the center right. He's a little waffly on the edges when it comes to some of his theology, but we'll cut him some slack. C.S. Lewis, he, uh, he was an atheist, or at least an agnostic. No, I think he was an atheist, professed atheist. 
wanted nothing to do with God. And his reason for rejecting God was this very reason I've just given you, this moral argument that if God were good and God were powerful, which is what God is supposed to be, then he would do something about evil. He would eradicate it. That was his position. Then what happened in the experience of C.S. Lewis was something called World War II and the Nazis and the Nuremberg trials. And he watched the British nation and the British Empire assume the position of what? Moral superiority. This is a moral war. We're engaging the enemy on moral grounds. And we're going to hound down the perpetrators of, the, of these atrocities. And we're going to bring them to trial. And the Nazis, their argument was simply this. Look, we have laws governing us as a nation. You have no right to judge us. But the counter-argument was what? No, there is such a thing as moral law. There is such a thing as moral absolutes. And what you did was horrific. And C.S. Lewis was sitting there at Oxford or somewhere, I don't know, reading his his Greek classics, and began to think to himself, well, by what right? By what right, on what basis, do we say what they did was wrong? Where do we get these categories, right and wrong, good and bad, from? And C.S. Lewis began to reason to himself, look, I know what a crooked line is when I see it. And the only reason I know what a crooked line looks like is because I know what a straight line looks like. The only reason I know what evil is, is because I know what good is. But if evolutionary theory is true, and I am simply an advanced germ, and there is nothing beyond the materialistic realm, those categories of good, bad, truth, error, justice, injustice are absolutely meaningless. They do not exist. And the moment an individual uses them, whether they acknowledge it or not, please, friends, it is irrelevant. The moment any individual uses such categories, that individual is confirming exactly what Paul is declaring in these verses. The knowledge of God is plain to them. Why? Because God himself has shown himself in creation. And yet we see the futility of man's thinking in this attempt to reject God on the basis of morality. And let me give you one third example. Here it is. Example of man's futility and hardened heart. He attempts to define life apart from God. He attempts to define life apart from God. And so when you think of the superstructure known as knowledge, our knowledge is either God-centered or our knowledge is man-centered. And when God is relegated to the periphery as irrelevant or as non-existent, all we are left with is what? Man. And therefore, all we are left with are systems of thought which are defined by, based upon, centered upon man. And those systems of thought ultimately prove what? Finite. That is why there are so many competing philosophies. That is why there are so many competing psychologies. That is why so many of these philosophies and psychologies absolutely contradict one another because man is at the center of their reasoning. And the repercussions of this futile thinking, this attempt to define life apart from God, we see it all around us. Humanism, this man-centered thinking, unable to explain pain, guilt, suffering, Unable to institute social justice, eradicate racial prejudice, solve chronic poverty, curb civil unrest, 
or end international conflict. This man-centered thinking fails to give any meaning to life. Its only achievement has been to dehumanize man, reducing him to the level of an animal or a machine. This man-centered thinking claims to champion man, but it's really man's worst enemy. It takes from man the only reality by which he can understand himself, God. We only have meaning insofar as we stand in relation to God. This life only has meaning, purpose, insofar as we define it in terms of a relationship with God. And yet we see this downward spiral. God has made it plain. We see this willful suppression of what God has revealed because of a refusal to honor Him or to thank Him. And then we see it spiraling downward even further, whereby man becomes futile in his thinking and his foolish heart is darkened. And what is the result? Life void of meaning. Life void of God. Man begins to revel in the absurd. It's true, isn't it? I hesitate to give this example, but I'm going to give it. But I do so with some hesitation. Man begins to revel in the absolutely absurd. Three weeks ago, a woman videotapes her abortion. I feel super great about having an abortion. I remember breathing and humming through it like I was giving birth. I know that sounds weird. But to me, this was as birth-like as it could be. It will always be a special memory for me. I still have the sonogram. And if my apartment were to catch fire, it would be the first thing I'd grab. I feel in awe of the fact that I can make a baby, that I can make a life. I knew, that I was, I knew what I was going to do was right because it was right for me reveling in the absurd. We dare not judge that woman because that is true of each and every one of us. It manifests itself to varying degrees and in a multitude of ways, but it manifests itself. Creation testifying not only to the existence of God, but to what God is like. God himself making himself known to all people, all places, all times. Man willfully, just like Adam and Eve, rejecting that revelation, refusing to honor him, refusing to give thanks. And man then living with the awful repercussions, futile, empty thinking, and a heart impervious, hardened, truth, reality. Oh, that is the road creation is taking us down. Set it in the context of what Paul is doing here. He is taking us to a dark place. He is proving the fact that, man, it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, or when you have lived. It doesn't matter if you're rural setting, urban setting. It doesn't matter what civilization. It doesn't matter what century. It doesn't matter what time period. All of that is irrelevant. God has shown himself. Therefore, man stands before his judge and jury without excuse. 
Oh, do you see the need now for Paul's thesis statement? The just shall live by faith. What hope do we have to stand before this God having willfully rejected him? What hope do we have to stand before this God on the basis of our own merit? Oh, no, the grace of God. And there's tremendous truth that the righteous, the just, a righteousness which is not their own, but a righteousness granted to them in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, that this person lives by faith. Oh, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine, no other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. Our Father, we praise you for the glorious gospel this day. We praise you that in our darkest days, in our darkest moments, in our darkest places, there is hope. There is a bright light as found in your Son, the Lord Jesus, the one who has laid down his life, the one who has given himself for us, turning away your wrath, securing divine mercy. And so we praise you for that matchless name this day, and that name which excels, far excels all other names, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We praise you for the gospel. We pray that it might be internalized this day. And we do pray, intercede on behalf of unbelievers present here, that this might be the day of salvation. When you grant them eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive, and we seek it all from you in the name of Christ. Amen.